This is a recording of a series of studies in the book of Job in the chapter of the open book. And as you know, those of you who are listening, it is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So if you care to switch off for a little while and read with us Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. In the earlier studies in this book of Job, possibly in the first study, I drew attention to that an appendix at the end of the Septuagint version, one or two of the Septuagint versions, because there are several, give a pedigree of Job. They tell you he was the fifth son of Abraham through Esau, and that his name was originally Jobab. The altered name in scripture always suggests that it's been altered because it's now going to be typical. You've got altered names in the scriptures like Abraham was altered to Abraham because it means the father of nations. And Job occurs for the first time in scripture in Genesis 3.15 when God said, I will put enmity, that's the word Job, between the two seeds. And then you've got the epitome of the whole book the enmity of the evil one against the true seed of God. The next suggestion was that Moses, fleeing from Egypt, going down the Midian, didn't know he was going to school. He was an Egyptian practically in his upbringing, with all the philosophy and the idolatry of Egypt around him and influencing him. After 40 years, he had been in that school. And then he had to go for another 40 years school in a very different character. And a part of the divine providence, I feel, was that he went to the very land where this book of Job was transacted. And in that vicinity, I don't think it would be possible for a man like Job, uh, for a man like Moses, living with a father-in-law that was a, a man of God too, and never get to know the story of Job. And so, we can feel that it was a, a wonderful textbook that fell into his hands by providence. So that when he came back after 40 years, he was no longer, it were, as it were, trained in all the arts of the Egyptians. He'd been trained in the wilderness. And God had spoken. Well now, it would be very strange if there were no traces in the scriptures afterwards, especially those written by Moses and those which are connected with Job in the wisdom set of scriptures, if there were no references or hints that this book of Job had had an influence. And that's the subject we're going to consider this evening as far as it's possible. It's going to be a very difficult thing to sustain interest uh, because it'll be looking at passages, turning from one to the other. Uh, but what we lose in eloquence, if there's such a thing to be said, I trust we'll gain by actually considering the actual word of God. I'm going to suggest that you just save yourself a little bother, because a good many of our references in the first case will be in Psalm 90. So that if you will keep your finger in Psalm 90, then when you're looking for the parallel I turn you to in Job, you will uh, not be wasting too much of your time. 
I'm not going to suggest that Moses quotes the book of Job. That would be one thing. What I'm suggesting is that almost unconsciously he betrays that he had steeped himself in the book of Job. And that is even more wonderful. And there's one passage which I haven't got on this chart but which I will draw your attention to that I think I can show but it needs a dipping into the original. I can show that even Paul, the prisoner, with his sufferings, found great consolation in reading the book of Job. For there is one piece in Philippians which is a word-for-word extract from the Greek version of the book of Job. Well now, we'll get to our subject. First of all, you do know, don't you, that Psalm 90 is the psalm of Moses. And the rabbinical law is that if a series of psalms are written and the first of the series contains the author's name, then the others are by the same author till you get another author. And Psalm 90 and 91 form a pair. They are written by Moses concerning the two classes that left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness because they murmured against God so many times and said that he brought their little ones out to die in the wilderness, God said, you who have said that, you shall wander in this wilderness 40 years and your little ones I'm going to preserve all the way through and when you're dead, they will go in. I know this psalm has been a consolation to many people many times and it will still be so. Especially when in those blackout days and bombs were dropping. Oh, how many people turned to Psalm 90. But nevertheless, I think we've got to watch that we don't allow sentiment to come in the place of truth. Because personally, I could never say that I spend my days in the wrath of God. That's in this psalm. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. Well, mine are not, friends, anyhow, and I don't think yours are. So that we must remember that this was a word spoken to those who knew that their days were numbered. The average, the average of a man who came out of Egypt, if he lived the full length of life in the wilderness, would be about 70. All those of 20 years old and upward would perish in the wilderness. So the man who was 20 couldn't live longer than 60. The man who was 30 couldn't live longer than 70. And the man who was 80 couldn't, uh, who was 40 couldn't live longer than 80. And of course people will tell you that 70 years is the uh, span of life. Well the span of life has been about 30 years and 35 years and 40 years and I don't know what it is now. It's been shifting and changing according to climate and people in industry and, uh, and all sorts of things. And the man who wrote these words, Psalm 90 himself, Moses, died at the age of 120. So if there's anybody here approaching 70, don't sit back and say, well, that's all up with me, I'm finished. You may not be. That's not, not, nothing to do with this passage of Scripture. So now let's look at some of the um, parallel passages. I've used that expression, haven't I? <coughs> spend their days. Spend their days. Well, you'll find that Job uses that expression twice. Shall we find it? Job 21.13 They spend their days in wealth or mirth 
Of course, in the psalm, it says they spend their days in something other than wealth. But it's the expression. They spend their days. And if you want a second one, 36, 11, it says, if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. Well, here we have this one, they spend, before all our days are passed away in their wrath, and we spend our years, we spend our years, the spending of time. It's one of those hints. We cannot say it's a quotation. Uh, but I suppose you have sometimes been reading a book or reading the editor's uh, page in the newspaper and although he doesn't quote Shakespeare, doesn't quote him, he so can't help himself, the man has said it once in such a way that nobody can bypass it and he includes it in his way of reference. You know, you get, that's caviar to the general. Now that may mean double dutch to some people, I don't know. Caviar to the general. I've seen that in books. Caviar is the surgeon's role. I've never had it. It's a luxury, but it's an acquired taste. And Shakespeare, when he's speaking in this way, he speaks about a, a play, as I remember. It pleased not the million, for it was caviar to the general, see? They couldn't stomach it. Well, that's crept into our language. And how many times has someone been, re- been likened to patience on a monument smiling at Greek? Well, there it is. That's been said. Well, that's the same way I feel that we won't get quotations, but we'll get little phrases. And they're not all over the scriptures. Quite a number of them will will occur once or twice, and that's all. But there's quite a number embedded in this one psalm, which I think will be helpful to us to notice. So, shall we go on? Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Yesterday when it is past. Now, in Job 17, verse 11, My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. My days are past. Again, you may say that's a very slender thread to hang uh, an argument on. But then it doesn't occur very many times. And it's the same expression. The days being past. And then if you look at Psalm 90, verse 5. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. Psalm 90 and 5. If you look at Job 24, verse 8. You won't see on the surface a very great parallel at first. Job 24, verse 8, They are wet with the showers of the mountains and embrace the rock for want of a shelter. Well, merely to be wet with showers is one thing. Some of the friends who come to this meeting have been wet with showers many a time. But the next part of the verse shows that it's a bit more uh, than that. They embrace the rock for want of a shelter. And Dr. Bullinger's metrical version, where he sought to give expression to the actual words, are... With sweeping rain, the mountain storm is wet. Sweeping rain, a mountain storm. And there we've got that expression there repeated in Psalm 90. Verse, um, verse 5. Now carries them away as with a mountain storm, a flood, sweeping them away. 
And then in Psalm 90 verse 6, in the morning it flourishes and groweth up, and in the evening it is cut down and withereth. That is 90 and 6. Well, if you'll come to Job 14, you'll know that he uses the same expression. Job 14, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. And then again in the 8th chapter and the 12th verse of Job, 8th chapter and the 12th verse, or he says, can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water? Whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb cut down. Are the words that Job uses and the word that Moses uses. And then the tenth verse. The tenth verse. Job 5 verse 7. In the tenth verse it reads, the days of our years are three score years and ten, and so on. Uh, Job 5, 7. Oh, I've got the, um, the, uh, the passage where it says, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And Job 20 and 8. Job 20 and 8. It shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Fly upwards and fly away. And um, in this um, in this verse at the end, I hadn't reached it. Yet is there strength, labour and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. You see, if only one of these had been found, you might have said, well, it's a, it's a thing that anybody might say. But we're creeping down this psalm, you see with quite a number of allusions that we can go back to Job and find the originals of them, and there's every likelihood that our suggestion is true, that they very much influenced Moses, both in his own personal experience and then in his survey of the purpose of God and the people of God and their difficulties and problems afterwards. Now, Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So teach us to number our days. Now this is again in Job 14 verse 5. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest. Here it is. The numbering of his days, the numbering of months. And again, in uh, the 90th Psalm, verse 12, in, you look at Job 7, verse 3. So am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed to me. Now you may say, where is the um, appointed there? Well, that's the translation of the word to number. So it's not merely in the English, but in the original with what a dip. Now we're back again in Psalm 90, verse 10. Psalm 90 and verse 10. 
I'll read it completely this time. The days of our years are three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score, yet is their strength labour and sorrow. Those two words, in the original, are the words in the Hebrew language, Amal, A-M-A-L, and Aven, A-V-E-N. If you want to write them down, I'll spell them again. A-M-A-L and A-V-E-N. Now these two words are used by Job. I think to get together. So we'll get two passages. Job 4 verse 8. Job 4 verse 8. Even as I have seen, they that plough iniquity and sow wickedness shall reap the same. Those words in their, in their order are Arvin and Amal. The two words. And then if you come to chapter 5 of the book of Job in verses 6 and 7, we have the two words again. 5, 6 and 7. Uh, just I wonder what I've got exactly there. Right. I want to make sure of it. Uh, Four, oh, four, six to eight, yes. That, that may be, we've looked at that, haven't we? It was this second one that I was trying to give you, but it doesn't seem to be quite coinciding with it, so I'll leave that for the time being. Look that up again. Well, that's just a few out of this one psalm. Well, now we'll turn our attention to some of the other psalms, because they also have got something of this same character about them. For instance, look at Job. Uh, look at Psalm thirty-seven, verse thirty-five and thirty-six. Thirty-seven, verse thirty-five and thirty-six. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and though he was not, yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. There's the figure of the wicked spreading like a great bay tree. And Job 5 verse 3. I have seen, see, introduced by the same expression, I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. It's much briefer, but it's much the same type of argument. And in Psalm 94 12, Psalm 94.12 Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. And in Job 5.17 Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth, therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Words like that would, of course, appeal to those who had passed through sorrow and suffering, so as many of these Psalms express. Then the figure used in Psalm 38 is found in Job. Psalm 38 verse 2. Psalm 38 verse 2. Verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, for thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. Arrows 
being used in that particular way. Now if you look at Job 6 verse 4 or the first the first verses of Job 6 that Job answered and said all that my grief were thoroughly weighed and my calamity laid in the balances together for now it will be heavier than the sand of the sea therefore my words are swallowed up for the arrows of the Almighty are within me and so on. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. And do you not remember in Psalm 91, in contrast to those in Psalm 90, that um, you will not need to be afraid of the terror that flies by night and the pestilence that walketh at noonday, the arrow and so on that will find out the others. They shall fall at thy side, but not you. God's going to protect thee, children. The others are exposed to the arrow. And then in Psalm 78:39, there's a figure that is an echo of the book of Job. Psalm 78:39. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. That is a figure which, of course, is repeated in the New Testament. And this is found, uh, it finds an echo in Job 7, verse 7. Oh, remember that my life is wind. He said so, the psalmist echoes the same thought. And then, um, in Psalm 35, verse 26, Psalm 35, verse 26, we have this figure. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice in mine hurt. Let them be clothed with shame. Clothed with shame. Now that is um, 35, 26. And if you look at Job 8, 22, They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame. Same expression. You see, if I picked out just one or two, you might say it was accident. But look at the pile I'm getting. And I've only looked at Psalms at the moment. Well, we just go on. In Psalm 119.73, Psalm 119.73, we have these words. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Well now you know we've had that already in Psalm ten, in Job 10 uh, where he says in the 8th um, verse Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Practically word for word quotation. Job and the psalmist saying the same thing. And then we have another expression in Psalm 39, 13. Oh, spare me, that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Psalm 39, 13. 
and Job 10, 20 and 21. Are not my days few? Cease then and let me alone, that I may take comfort a little. Before I go, whence I shall not return. The one says, before I go, hence. And the other says, before I go, and I shall not return. But there's the same figure. Going, hence, going, whence, no return. And then, while we have Psalm 39, if you still have it, 10 and 11. Remove thy stroke away from me, for I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. That's Psalm 39, 10 and 11. Now Job 12, you see I'm steadily going through Job now, you know this, we've been going 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. This is Job 12, 21. And, no, wait a minute. 13, I'm sorry. 13, 21. As I'm getting dizzy with these turnings of these passages backwards and forwards. 31, uh, uh, 13, 21. Withdraw thine hand far from me and let not my dread make me afraid. Verse 28, and, and he as a rotten thing consumeth, as a garment that, are, that is moth-eaten, the use, the reference to the moth, known to Job, and known to the psalmist, and used much in the same way. Then again, Psalm 138, verse 8. 138, verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever, forsake not the works of thine own hand. And that appeal to forsake not the work of thine own hand seems to make us think uh, a little bit of the passage in Job 14 that we looked at when we were considering the problem of resurrection. In Job 14, verse 15, Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee, and thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine own hand. So we've got the same sort of feeling. Forsake not the works of thine own hand. In Psalm 7, 14, Psalm 7, 14, I dare say the turning over these leaves in the recording of sound as I'm using corrugated iron, but it's not possible to, to avoid it. 7 and 14. Behold, he travailed with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. That sort of figure of the birth, travail and birth of iniquity. And Job 15, 35. They conceive mischief and bring forth vanity and their belly prepareth deceit. That is very much in common, the same sort of argument, the same uh, feeling of progress and generation. And then 
the psalm of our Saviour's sufferings, Psalm 22, verse 13. Psalm 22, verse 13. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. The gaping upon him, I think you'll find as an echo in Job's, for Job's experience. Chapter, Job 16, 10. The, um, Earlier reference would be parallel with the lions. He teareth me in his wrath. He raiseth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpens his eyes upon me. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. There again you get the same feeling. Gaped with the mouth. Now we're getting to an end of this long list. So, just one more. Psalm 88 verse 8. Psalm 88, verse 8. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance from me, far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. 88, verse 8. And Job 19, verse 13. He had a similar experience. Job 19, verse 13. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. Mine acquaintance. And there's an echo in the psalm dealing with Christ being betrayed, mine own familiar friend. Well now the reference that um, I would like you to turn to in Philippians, While you have Job, keep, uh, perhaps you'd like to look at the one in Job first, and then we can turn to Philippians. Job 13, verse 16. Now the words that I want you to notice are, He also shall be my salvation. And if I can utter the Greek words to make them intelligible, I don't know whether I shall have correct pronunciation over this, but I don't speak Greek, I read it. The Greek words are Tauto moi, apobesitai, ice soterion. I've said that because they are the identical words, right to the very letter that you find in Philippians 1 verse 19. Not merely a casual statement, but an actual citation. But I don't think there's any indication that the Apostle Paul knew or remembered that he was quoting from the book of Job. He's speaking about himself. It's like those references. You're so full of the subject that it comes out in your language. So now we look at this Philippians 1, verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. And those words are identical with the ones that I've just quoted. On the surface, in the English, they don't look the same. But the word for word, they are exactly the same. Now I think that's a, a useful feeling. Something for our benefit. Here we have a man in prison. A man who's suffering. And although he knew that he had a ministry that was associated with suffering, 
He does reveal at times that it is a man of like infirmity to ourselves. And we can readily believe that sometimes Paul was not on the mountain top. Sometimes, unless he was a very different sort of man from you or me, sometimes he would be plunged in the depths. And I feel that there's a suggestion here, this man in prison, who is now rejoicing in spite of all the limitations of prison life and the sufferings that he's passed through, gives a sort of suggestion that if he wasn't actually reading the book of Job in prison, he got it in his heart and in his mind, and it was helping him. And so, this reference, I think, is one that you should note. I'm not sure that you would find it in the books that give you lists of quotations. I don't quite know how I came across it myself. Whether I owe it to somebody else, or whether I found it myself, it doesn't matter, does it much? I don't know. But I'm glad to have found it, because it helps us to see that this book of Job was at least valued by the servant of God who means so much to us. Uh, no casual words, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I don't suppose he would stop to think that those words have been prompted into his mind in the first instance by reading the same words in the book of Job. Well, as we have this verse in front of us in Philippians, let's look at it for ourselves. I'm conscious that this evening's subject would have been far better to have read at your desk than listen to me turning backwards and forwards. I've stumbled over some, I've forgotten a few, and I've got a few mixed up. Well, that's because I'm a man of like infirmity to you, you see. But if you do want to check these, and would uh, like to have them under your hand, you'll find them all in the little booklet which we have published on the book of Job. I've only lifted some out. But we'll come to this Philippians 1 because here's a point here that may be uh, uh, worthwhile for the next few minutes. He says that he was in prison and he was in prison for the furtherance of the gospel and he rejoiced in it in that sense because in verse 7 he says, um, as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my sorrows, miseries, imprisonment. No, ye all are partakers of my grace. That's the way he put it. The bonds and the afflictions are there. He mentions them. But he said, this is all a part of the grace of God. And if you look at verse 29 in the same chapter, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, the word given could be, and perhaps should be translated, graciously given. Given as an act of grace. For unto you it is given as an act of grace. So it's not something to be shirked. If, by the grace of God, you're prepared for it, it's an honour to stand with a rejected Christ than to be let off. Of course I know we can use this idea of suffering with Christ and we may become glib about it. That's something to be avoided. But when you realise that this man, he chose that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. 
He was willing for it. He got to that. So now in this, getting nearer to this section that we were looking at just now, he says in verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Then he tells you the sad thing, that although some brethren have been encouraged uh, to become confident in preaching the gospel, others were preaching a Christ of contention and not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to his bond. Oh, what a dreadful thing for anyone ever to record. But now look at the man's reaction. Verse 18, he puts the question, what then? Well, what are you going to do about it, Paul? Are you in misery over this? He says, no. Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Now we're getting to the heart of this man's service and the secret of his strength. Christ is preached. He says, I'll leave it. Whether they preach out of goodwill or whether they're preaching contention, I'll leave that for the law to decide. But Christ is being preached, even though it's bearing hard upon me. And therein do rejoice, yea, I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Now you may say, wasn't Paul a saved man? Yes. There's every possibility he was speaking of his deliverance from prison. This shall turn to my deliverance through your prayer. Now I would like you to watch here for a moment, friends, three items that contribute to the answer of prayer. Now this is where we all come in, whether we're all in line with the book of Job or not. Here he says, through your prayer, now that's intercession, the brethren outside were remembering him, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So the prayer was going up to the right hand of God, where the intercessor would present it to the Father. And he had all the power. And then we have, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, we say, what's that got to do with it? Everything. There's many a time a prayer has never been answered because you, the one that's being prayed for, had neither expectation or hope. You were bothering. You hadn't switched on. Don't you see the three things? The brethren outside were praying for him. The Lord at the right hand of God was remembering and he hadn't bothered. So there's no connection and no answer. But Paul says, yes, I've got a closed circuit. Here it is. You have remembered me. Christ has remembered me. And I have remembered. And we're linked together. So I commend that to you, friends, that um, there's a need for us not only for others to pray for us, but for us to gratefully remember and acknowledge that they are remembering us so that the two can meet together. And then he puts it this way, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I should be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. These passages want to be taken in their context, but I think we can realise the intensity of this man's attachment to the person of Christ. And I would suggest to you, as a private study, we can't go into it now, that if you take the words in Colossians 3, when it says, 
Your life is hid with Christ in God and Christ who is our life, that's the Godward side of it. That's what God has planned. Here's the manward side of it, the man answering to God. He said, Christ is my life. For what's my answer? For me to live is Christ. For me to live here is Christ. For me to live there will be in its fullness that I cannot reach here. But I think Colossians is the great doctrine and Philippians is the equally wonderful great practice. Well, that's just a little bit at the end of the rather wearying study, possibly, of these parallel passages that are found in the Psalms, which are evidently coloured by the book of Job. You might say to me, well, are there no other references? Oh, friends, if you're greedy, yes. There are 18 references in the book of Proverbs, and 9 in the book of the Prophets, as well as those that we've looked at ourselves. So you see, there's a few more. But I felt that was sufficient for this evening, because it's uh, a subject that um, you can't do much with except to face them and weigh them over. And some of them are more striking if you discover them in the original rather than in the English translation, because they don't always seem to walk on all fours. Well, that's as far as we'll go with this subject this evening, and I trust that it may be blessed to help us to see there's a, a link, an organic oneness between these servants of God, and not only so, not only speaking by inspiration, but having a common experience, so that the words that were uttered by a man many years ago will find an echo in the heart of a man living in very, very different circumstances. But the age in which we live is an evil one. And although the attack of the enemy may take different turns, it will always have the same object, to come in between you and Christ. And if he can do that, he has accomplished his purpose. So may the Lord shield us and help us to realise that this book has been written not merely to satisfy our curiosity, but to satisfy our deepest needs and turn our attention more and more as the days go by to the fact that Christ is all and in all.